Sansuk. Chapter 27. Read by XX, Legolas Prince of Darkness, XX, also known as Elani. He could do nothing. He could do nothing. Do not think I won't kill you, dwarf. It would be my pleasure. The holes pass in a blur before his eyes, and dwarves scatter before his rage like ants. More fools they. His rage was powerless, ineffective. What good was Thorin, son of Trine? Son of Thor, he was dead, dead. What good was his gift? What use was he at all? This obscenity was beyond his influence. The elf wished to lay claim to his star. Again, he roared, hear his own voice rebound back at him through the twisting, beautiful, somber corridors. Again! Is there nothing of ours that elves cannot covet? Our gold and our crafts and our dignity are not enough. They must take our children as well. The memory of a red-headed elf captain flickered into his mind's eye, and he fisted his hands in his hair and roared and roared and roared until his eyes felt as though they were on fire from the force of his cry. This, this son of Trandwil who had looked upon them with disdain and disgust, this sneering creature with blood of ice and eyes of flat crystal, desired Gimli, Gimli, glowing sun, best and brightest of dwarves, touring safe harbor for eighty years, this arrogant, colting, ageless and superior, wanted to hold and keep his star. And he could do nothing. What is this horrid creature? A goblin mutant. A hammer found his hand. He swung it. And before his fury, the muffled cries of others melted away. A wall crumbled. A door rose before his eyes and he slammed it behind him. His sword fell into his other hand, crafted in his own forge an elegant, elvish curve to the blade. It was as near to Orchrist as he could contrive without the magic of the elves. Heavier, certainly, and slightly more blocky, despite his best efforts. His best efforts now seemed a mockery. This was all a mockery. It slides through the end of his workbench satisfyingly enough. Impossible! Insanity, an elf, to find beauty in a dwarf. Ah, but this is the fullest of lies. As though an eternal being of stars and moonlight could ever see the children of Mahal as anything other than ungainly, lumping, unsightly. Thorin himself had heard it with his own ears. Legolas found them inexpressibly ugly, too short, too hairy, too broad, rough-hewn and brutish. 
to him that divorce must be nothing more than a clumsy first attempt at life, a repugnant and awkward imitation of the true children of Iluvitar. A goblin mutant! Even his slight and barefaced nephew had been hideous to those eyes. Unnaturally blue eyes, clear as river water. Oh, elves were beautiful, it could not be denied. But dwarves were only beautiful to each other. No, no elf could see the wild and rugged splendor in Gimli's rough hair, his feathered cheeks, his thick arms and legs, his hard, scarred, and massive hands. How in Mahal's name could an elf, could Tranduil's tall, haughty, milk-pale and white golden spawn, ever recognize the nobility of a dwarven face, a durin brow, a broad-beam nose, a handsome and abundant beard? How could Tranduil's son ever think such a thing? You lack all honor. I have seen how you treat your friends. We came to you once, starving, homeless, seeking your help. But you turn your back. You turn away from the suffering of my people and the inferno that destroyed us. Tranduil's son. Tranduil's damned son. Their jailer and hunter. The one who had taken such pleasure in their capture and humiliation. It could not be born. It was obscene. Legolas could not have changed. This is a plot. Ah, of course, all these moments of camaraderie and understanding were all but an elaborate plot to gain Gimli's confidence. And it had worked. No elf in the history of Arda had ever known so much of their people. Gimli, that trusting, open soul, had given the elf secrets, so many secrets that his ears must groan with them. It had nearly worked upon Thorin. Gimli will never be harmed by my hand, deed or word. This I swear. Lies! All lies! This could not be true. He threw himself at his tools, his rasp flying through the air to land inches deep in his packed dirt floor quivering. His hands scatter his carefully and meticulously organized fasteners. Balls, brackets and soldiers skittered over his smithy floor like cave insects, and he took up his heavy sword once more and took apart his cabinets with grim and methodical strokes. I will do you any service, perform for you any penance. If you can only tell me that he is alive and well. If that cannot sway you, then for the love we both bear him, find him, protect him. I cannot lose him. Legolas had not said those words. He had not. He had not. He was Thranduil's son. He was the child of their betrayer, spawn of that unfeeling, unmovable pale spider that crouched amongst the leaves and left dwarven children to starve. For what? Revenge over a chest of white gems? Thousands of shrunken bellies, all to placate some memory of ancient dragonfire? But 
He had learned to grieve as dwarves grieve, and he gave Gimli comfort, and he kept their secrets. He is the best of beings, the most loyal, the kindest, and the noblest, and the most beautiful. I will have no other. I can have no other. Thorin's eyes fell upon his latest work. A pen, of course. The nib was shaped like a leaf. Bilbo would like that. He would exclaim in surprise and admire the cleverness behind the design. His eyes would light up in that way they had. And Thorin had never even kissed his hobbit. Never known what he tasted like. Never sobbed of that clever little mouth or held those nimble hands in his own. Low was a trap, and low was to lose. To be in low, <laughs> that was to be in pain. Did Legolas ache as Thorin ached? No. No. The nib was shaped like a leaf. In his hand, Thorin's heavy smithing hammer, forged of the dance steel, and too weighty for Frerin to lift, drooped suddenly. He could not destroy the things he had made for love. Legolas defended Gimli, even against Aragorn. He had drawn his bow upon the tall lord of the Rohirrim. He found beauty in their ancient traditions. Strange beauty, he had said. The dwarves were ever betrayed. Even love did not stand the natural march of such things. For every joy, a thousand sorrows. Tell me, can you think of any elf who would be dissuaded from the truth of their heart? Elves did not believe that dwarves had hearts with which to love. The nib was a leaf, a delicate young leaf. Thorin had edged the filamentine lines within its blade, the fragile veins of the thing, until it almost seemed to breathe and quiver upon a tree. Leaves and flowers and foolish, elvish fancies. Thorin ignored the hot flash of pain beneath his heart, and set to destroying his bellows with willfully deaf desperation. Balin's eyes drooped. That consummate statesman, wielder of law and treaty, veteran of the dullest meetings the line of Durin could contrive, would fall asleep in this court of men. Shameful, he scolded himself, jerking his sagging head upright, and then yawned. Dwolin would be laughing up his sleeves at you, calling you old and infirm. In his defense, the court of Brand, son of Bane, son of Bard, was as dull as ditch water and twice as murky. Palin found that he much preferred dwarven politics to those of men. Dwarves were far more direct in these things, and tradition led where negotiations failed. The only liveliness in the court was a certain tenseness in the air, the folk of Dale knew their nearest and most powerful ally was besieged, after all. The armies of Mordor could be seen easily from the towers of the city, encircling the mountain like a wild, malevolent moat. It could only be a matter of time until a second force broke away from the siege to take care of the fat, rich, isolated city just across flight to the south. 
Still, the courtiers argued most insidiously their case. They wove pretty webs of wars around the king, each trying to gain the most power and position. None ever ratified his decision to go to the mountain's aid. Brand was old now. It was strange to see him and remember the little lad who had once played with a wooden horse by Balin's feet as he spoke to King Bane about affairs of the mountain. His hair was white and his eyes were surrounded by wrinkles, eight spots marking the backs of his slightly shaking hands. His voice was not strong any longer, and it made Balin sad to hear it. No wonder the silk-clad butterflies found themselves so loud these days. Investigate close trade terms with the Elven King, finished one courtier, one hand clasping his doublet and the other raising a kerchief to his nose. He rather reminded Balin of the master of Lake Town, if he was honest. Fine clothes and airs, but his skin was oily with brandy sweat, and his hair was lank and unwashed. Now that the mountain cannot provide Dell with sufficient goods and services for her needs, we must find a new source of trade. Dell must not suffer a reduction in wealth. Dell's markets are a wonder of the north, said a prim, pinch-faced woman with a little smile. We certainly cannot allow our reputation to fade. Why, where would the people be? Your reputation was gathered from the toy makers of the dwarves two centuries ago. Balin growled to himself, and then he shook his head. Greed was greed, no matter the greedy. Elf, man or dwarf. Of course, the of people. Course, the of people. Course. Murmured the assembled piously. We must think of the people. We must. Your words would carry greater weight. If I did not know for certain that you have laid off three dozen of your granary workers in only the last month, Lady Norna, Brand said in his dusty, querulous old voice. I have only ever sought to serve this city, my king, she said sweetly, curtsying. Several faces turned away, smirking in private disbelief. <clears throat> the Elven King reminded the first man with a little cough. So quickly do we turn upon our best allies, sighed the king, and all the courtiers began to utter shocked denials. Not too loudly, however. They certainly did not wish to be the champion of the mountain. Balin's called. You pathetic little parrots, he muttered. In my day, I would have dieseled you with treaties and words until you had promised to dig our newest delvings for us. If not for Erebor, Del would not even stand today. Your ingratitude will become known as the wonder of the North. We only think to serve Dale, my lord, said another with a little bow. The Elven King has ever been a friend to man, and we have many things, things beyond the goods and jewels and crafts of the mountain which would please the elves. Is it right that we should suffer for a quarrel between dwarves and orcs? No, it is not. This is not our war. We should not pay for it. There was a chorus of assent, and many nodded self-importantly. 
The courtier who had spoken looked around at his fellows with a glittering triumphant eyes. The lady Norna greeted her teeth in jealousy. Brent smiled, though it was humorless. The Helen King has greater things on his mind than trade these days. The trash has returned. At this, the court fell silent. Balin leaned forward. Only the line of Girion could understand the speech of the trashes. A matter of some disgruntlement for the mountain's ravens. Standoffish and superior, they called it. But then... The ravens were life as famous amongst all others as dedicated gossips. He disagrees with you, Brent continued, a mild note of grim satisfaction in his old, cracked voice. Bali nodded firmly and crossed his arms in approval. The Elven King is famous for his isolationist ways. But even he sees the threat in this army of Mordor. He has sent aid to the mountain, and his sons now scatter across the lands, one in Erebor, one upon a desperate quest, and one to the south. And here is the news you have not heard, my lords. As you care so for the people of Dale, perhaps it will finally encourage you to defend them. Shadows gather in the south of the forest once more. Brand continued, and he pulled himself to his feet. The old fortress is no longer empty. We are caught in a vice grip and can no longer tarry for foolish questions of trade and profit. Poppycock, cried one man. Gandalf the Grey emptied Dol Guldur nearly two centuries ago. What proof is this? Jealousy and spite! Dale is rich and prosperous, and the elves grow envious. The elven king only wishes to see Dale starve and her coffers dry. That is what this is about. If only you care so much about the salvation of our folk as you do for your poor coffers, said the laconic voice of Brand's son, Bart second, so very like his namesake that it made Balnish draw clench in remembered guilt. Do you not understand yet? We are trapped between an army upon our north doorstep and the horrors of Dol Guldur swarming through the reaches of the forest to the west and the south. The greenwood will become murkwood once more. But what to the east, you say? The great vast plainlands, bare and barren, stretch to the east, with no shelter nor water until the Iron Hills. There is nowhere to flee. We are trapped. You thought the dragon was bad? Do consider that the worst it ever did to us was burn us alive. The orcs will not be so kind. If they are feeling merciful, they shall kill us before they begin their true sport. As cheerful as the first bard, Balin muttered. Peace, bard, Brand said, holding up his bony hand. Then he wavered on his feet for a moment before drawing himself up as tall as his stupid old frame would allow, his eyes fixed upon the garish popping jays of his court with undisguised dislike. The Elven King is not an alternative to our treaty and our trade with Erebor, 
I have waited long enough for the ratification of this council. Too long, perhaps. But an unmistakable messenger has come to us, and at great cost to himself. I can wait no longer. Dale and her allies can wait no longer. Now quiet your prattling tongues and listen. What form of a messenger? Another pathetic stinking bird. Begging for... Began the first courtier, puffing up in indignation, before one of his fellows elbowed him silent. A small, dirty figure had emerged from behind the throne. But the mountain is cut off, muttered the woman in Orna. Aye, and no thanks to you lot, said the dwarf, tapping out his hat and glaring up at them. It was a ludicrous image, the soil-smeared, grey-touch miner glaring with clenched fists at the richly dressed and elaborately coiffed merchants that had taken over Brian's court. We've been sending a ravens for bloody weeks, ye bastards, and none a peep. I heard some mention of Dell's markets before. Well, in that case, you know who I am then, don't you? Balin stood up in astonishment, and then he clapped his hands together in triumph. Bofor. Bofor of the company has made it true to us. Brand announced before bowing slightly to Bofor. The proper gesture of respect from a king to a highly respected counselor of Erebor, and one of the richest and most famous. Or was it infamous? Dwarfs in Middle-earth. Watch out, lads, said Bofor shortly, still dusting his hat off with angry strokes of his forearm. Bofor, my dear fellow, said another courtier in an oily, welcoming way, but Bofor was in full fatal. Not even a singe and seal proclamation from Durin himself could have stopped him. Don't you, my dear fellow, me? I'm not your dear anything, you puffed up pack of pigs, he snapped pulling away and cramming his head back onto his head. I am Bofur, son of Bonfur, and I am not having a good day. Do you know how much earth I had to move to tunnel out from the mountain? Can you even guess? Guess where it went? Down my back for the most part. There are crevices on me that feel like they're packed with mortar, and that ain't even going into the sheer bloody nervousness of tunneling eight straight miles without alerting the army on top of your heads. Want to know how much wood it takes to prop and shore that many miles of tunnel? I don't think there's a whole table left in Erebor. My lord Bofur, wheedled in Orna, but Bofur leveled his glare at her. Ah, shut it, you shriveled up old stork. I'm no lord, even if my wife is a lady. He growled, and finger combed roughly at his dirt-filled moustaches. Right, here it is then. We're totally besieged, the tunnel's no way to evacuate an entire mountain full of dwarves, and there's no possible way we're running from our home ever again, so that's that. We're not going without one hell of a fight, and so here I am. We've come to see if our alliances mean as much to men as they do to dwarves, basically. Of course. No dwarves equals no jewels, no gold, no toy market. That's assuming that the orcs up there don't get a bit tired of tough old dwarmit after a while and start thinking of barbecuing some nice fresh man so close and handy. 
I know a lot of the lads who run the stalls and liveries for you, and I met your spearsmen and archers. Damn fine bunch, and I won't lie, we could use the help. How many orcs besiege a mountain? said Bard, leaning forward intently. Bofur had certainly found some courage in the past eighty years or so, for he did not deter or stall or bluster as he once would have. To be honest, I can't count that high, he said in a level voice. Our chances don't look good. We need food. We need supplies. We need secret messengers that don't bloody get shot from the sky. We need a way to break the siege. We need our allies. If the dwarves are so fiercely independent of the other races, why would you need us? Sneered a branding reeking courtier, and both were huffed loudly. Aye, that's our reputation, no doubt. But old Dine says that we're here and now in the world, and I agree with him. I don't want my Leolette to grow up thinking that suspicion and isolation is the right way to live. Bofur knocked at his head with the heel of his hand. A shower of black dirt rustled down from his pigtails to the floor. Mahal below, but what I wouldn't give for a beer right now. Anyway, I'm letting you know. We are maybe two months, three months away from starring, and that's when they'll wear us down. Once they're done with us, they'll turn to you. Well... That's if they don't divide their forces and come and gobble you up sooner so to save time. That one-eyed bastard down in Mordor won't be satisfied with just Erebor when he can have Dale too. And there are things in his army, things you don't want to meet. Balin shuddered. We have to stand together, men and dwarves and elves. Bofor continued firmly, planting his feet upon the stone and pressing his heels down as though calling for Mahal's blessing. We are likely to be swallowed whole, separate as we are. Many of us older ones, we can't bear to see Della as it was ever again. His face grew somber. The Lady Dis remembers the first time it was destroyed. She told me to say that she would personally defend the city with her own blade if needed. The princess... The first advisor. The whisper ran around the court, and Balin drew himself up with pride in his cousin. This was still a name to be reckoned with. My lords, you will ratify the king's motion to go to war, said Bard, drawing himself up and turning upon the courtiers, a grim look upon his face. You will do so now. We will leave Dale defenseless cried one, and she was echoed by a chorus of assent. Our homes, our businesses, our goods. Dela is defenseless, if you don't mind me saying so, Beaufort said, scratching his chin. Another shower of dirt slid her to the ground. Have you seen how many orcs are out there? There isn't room to swing a cat between them. They're like a carpet, if a carpet smelled like a century-old breechcloth. Balin groaned a little to himself. It seemed fatherhood hadn't exactly made Bofor's sense of humor any less crass. Perhaps not in a king's court, my friend, he mumbled, and pulled at his beard in exasperation. Besides, your walls are good, but they aren't that good, Bofor added, 
Durin's beard. I have played some of that soon myself, and I know we did fine work. But there are enough orcs out there to pull every stone from their foundations, without spending even a fifth of their forces. If you are trapped behind the slopes of the mountain, how exposed do you think you are in comparison? Stuck out here on this hilltop, like a ball on someone's bum. To that many orcs, you are sitting here with your breeches down and your tackle exposed, with your fingers stuck in your ears. Alin closed his eyes. Oh, Mahal wept. He mumbled in despair. That caught their attention. Many fell quiet, with suddenly worried faces. However, the courtier that writh of brandy and the shrill lady in Norna could not be so easily silenced. We best try the high ground, said Lady Norna, tossing her head. We will destroy them before they can even lay a filthy hand upon our stones. They have no reason to turn to us, the man said pompously. Everyone knows the mountain is richer than Dale. Erebor will hold their attention. Aye, but as I found out eighty years ago, gold makes for a poor sauce, Beaufort said, leaning disrespectfully against the king's throne as he yanked off his boot and upturned it. A trickle of fine black soil fell from it, and Balin groaned again and resisted the urge to pull his beard up over his eyes. We're not exactly living on fertile land, if you haven't noticed. Even orcs have to eat, and they'll holds the granaries and the best part of the livestock hereabouts. Not to mention, if an orc wants a snack on a dwarf, even if he can somehow manage to drag one of us down from battlements that are 100 feet high, well, he's got to get through dwarven armor first. That's a pretty riddle for any who doesn't know the trick of it. Beaufort let his boot drop to the floor and tugged off the other one before wringing his toes against the stone of the throne room. But a man? No, he barely has to be unwrapped at all. Be the steel, be the ladder, and Boren's your uncle. That's repulsive, said Dinorna. I see you've not made acquaintance of many orcs, Beaufort said, grinning. Let me tell you then, they're not exactly polite dinner conversationalists. Still, we can be grateful they're not goblins. They sing. Lords, ladies, rasped Brand, and the dwarf fell silent as the king walked forward with careful steps. You will ratify the decision to go to war, or I shall replace you with a council that will. But my lord Brand, this is tyranny, spluttered a courtier, and he was echoed by a chorus of shouts. Brand's old eyes blazed and he lifted both his hands. And if you are all murdered by the forces of the Black Land, I hope you will feel secure in knowing that you did so as rich men and women, said Bart sarcastically, and Beaufort snorted loudly. You have dishonored your positions, Brand continued sternly. You have spent so much time jostling for power and coin, plotting for the event of my death, that you have lost sight of your purpose. You serve nothing but yourselves. You have sullied your names and betrayed our long friendship with Erebor. This is intolerable, spluttered the brandy-soaked courtier. 
only to be met with the black sword of the crown prince before his eyes. Yes, it is, he said, his mouth a flat line. Years ago we were known for fair and grim dealings, for honesty and loyalty to our allies. The old masters of Aesgarod slowly corrupted our reputation until we were but a pathetic reflection of their grasping, greedy ways. You are their fitting heirs. They'll deserve better than you. You are an awful lot like him, you know that, Bofo remarked, keeping his head back and squinting at Bard. Bard smiled humorlessly. So I've been told. Brent stepped down from the dais and nodded to a spearsman in the corner. A captain, if Balin were any judge of the markings on his helm and breastplate. My lords and ladies, I am afraid you leave me little choice, he said before bowing his white head. Thine has been my friend since the day of my birth. He has watched over our city since the days of Dale's renewal, offering aid and hands and knowledge freely and without fail. We have been made rich and plentiful through the friendship of the mountain. Now, for once, they need our aid. They need our hands. I will not suffer you to turn us away from our rightful obligations for the sake of your money coffers. Call me a tyrant if you will, but you have forced us to tyranny through your greed, your avarice, and your slothful indifference. Now, make the choice. Does Dale stand and fight? Or do I appoint new counselors with less burdensome purses? The noise that greeted this was deafening, but the spearsmen about the throne room all hefted their weapons and took a single step forward, and that was that. Well then, said Buffer cheerfully, thanks awfully, and we'll see you lads at the mountain. How long has he been in there? Prerin looked up. His elder nephew stood there, frowning at Thorin's smithy door. Hours, he sighed, and sat back against the corridor wall. Hours and hours. Who sent you? Grandfather, Philly said, and then winced as a particularly loud clang rang through the air. Poker, do you think? Prerin wrinkled his nose and shook his head. Shawl against the backplate of the forge. Oh, right. Phil hesitated, and then he gingerly sat down beside Freren in the corridor. No access. For answer, Freren snorted and jerked his head upwards. Phil followed his gaze and then winced. A narrow, vertical hole had been torn into the door to the smithy, right up near the ceiling. It had ripped right through one corner of poor Orr's much-revised, painstakingly rewritten schedule, leaving it to hang forlornly upside down. Embedded in the ceiling of the corridor itself was a great double-headed axe. Billy's eyebrows shoot up. Oh! You missed the morning star, Frere muttered. Now that was really exciting. Philly rubbed at his eyes before he turned back to Freren. 
All right. Can you tell me what in Durin's name this is all about? Nobody will tell me anything. Oin is moaning and getting drunk again, and Audi just squeaks at me and scurries away. All I can gather is that it is about Gimli. And Legolas, Perrin finished flatly, and Philly let his voice die away, letting the expectant silence as a question for him. Eventually, Fern sighed, and then he turned to Philly. If they are not as you call it by Durin's day, I will run through the holes in grandmother's jewelry. Only grandmother's jewelry. Philly's jaw slackened, his eyes going blank, and his shoulders thumping back against the wall. What? He managed after a few moments. Neo heard. Philip blinked several times, and then his eyes turned to the closed, splintered smithy door. Then he swallowed. Hard. Now you're getting it, Fern said sarcastically. He's simply thrilled about the idea, as you can tell. Wait, when? Philip began, and then he shook his head rapidly. No, stop, wait! Gimli and Legolas! How do you know this? A second clatter sounded through the air, accompanied by a short roar. Armor? Fern wondered, and Philip rubbed at the bridge of his nose. Weapon stand, he groaned. Wait, back up. This cannot be happening again. All I could gain from him was that Legolas confessed to Aragorn, Baron said, and let his head fall back against the wall with a clunk. The rest was mostly incoherent fury. He does a good line in incoherent fury, Billy said after a pause. He always did, Freren agreed. There was an unmusical crash, and then the sound of a snapping wire. Harp? Must have been the harp. The two blonde dwarfs watched Dor in various silence for another few minutes, listening as Thorne's battles grew more and more desperate, and the ring of metal against metal more frantic. Nephew and brother alike were staring at their feet, though Fern flinched occasionally when Thorne's curses turned particularly vicious, and Philly's jaw grew set and hard at his choice of epithets. I didn't ever like the elves, Fern said, and then he slumped down, his small hands twisting over each other. They always looked at me like I was a worm that had learned a clever trick. But what he just said, Legolas isn't that. He's not bad, he's good. I never liked them either, Philly said, and he sighed. And then once I my tweet of a brother's life. Legolas has saved Gimli's life, said Freren, though his tone was questioning rather than certain. Aye, and Gimli has saved Legolas. Philip pushed down the instinctual surge of revulsion, learned over a million childhood stories and careless insults and jokes that were not really funny. Does Gimli return the elf's regard? Freren's only answer was a long, flat look. Right. Philly said, and sighed again. Right. Why do I have the feeling I have lived through this before? Because that same Twitter-patted brother of yours fell Arsoric Helm for an elf? Said Frerin. He pulled a face. And who can say if Gimli will do likewise? He obviously cares, but he may not ever...
he bit at his lips. He's a son of Doran's line, that's for sure. Philip glanced at the door and then grimaced. Oh, oh, like, yes, he might not ever know. Philip said a flawless word he knew. The situation sort of called for it. Fern looked both appalled and impressed simultaneously. Wow, this would have had your tongue for that. Wow. There was a loud, metallic twang. Steel ruler, the pair said in unison. Silence fell once more upon them, broken only by the muffled sounds of Thorin's rage. Are you going to try? asked Farron eventually. What can it hurt? he said philosophically, getting to his feet and gingerly approaching the door. Bones? Flash? Sinew? Farron counted off on his fingers. The holes of Mahal, possibly. Ah, uh -huh. shut up. Fern's voice was wheedling as he said. Call me uncle and I'll never speak again. In your dreams, itty bitty caused it. Philly shot back, before turning back to the door and stealing himself. He tapped upon it with his knuckles. Thorin? Thorin. Uncle, it's Philly. I just want to know if you're all... A thunderous stump landed upon the other side of the door, making Philly jump from it in alarm. Thorin's voice was suddenly very close and very low as he groveled a single, violence-laden word. Leave! I... I'll leave you alone then, Philly stammered, and then he stumbled back against the opposite corridor once more, his heart hammering. By his feet... Farron shrugged. Well, you tried. Has everyone received that reaction? Philly said, staring at the door. There was sweat beating upon his brow. He was sure of it. Farron chuckled, dark and low. Yep, be grateful you didn't get an extra on over your head. He scratched reflectively at his chin for a bit and then added, It's a damn good thing your tweet brother is so fast on his feet. Philly stared at the door some more, and then he snorted. My tweed brother. Fern's mouth croaked ruefully, and he met Philly's eyes. Not for the first time, Philly was struck by how similar they were in appearance. Even though Philly had more than 30 years upon his younger uncle. Blue eyes, with blonde hair, thick eyebrows, and the sharp Dory nose. Yes, very similar. Well, I can sympathize, he said, and he stood up with a sigh, glancing back at Thorne's smithy door once before turning his head away. Come on, I need a drink. Two tweed brothers, said Philly, and Fern chuckled again and grinned up at him. Two tweed brothers. Before! The cry came from a blur that raced from the Chamber of Sansukul in a whirl of nits and auburn hair. Quite a few dwarves flinched or scurred out of the way. They had learned to be wary of the dwarves that ran from that chamber. The memory of Thorin's recent thunderous tirade would not soon diminish. Before, the blur begged, and the poor hapless dwarfdom it had cornered shook and pointed down a corridor. Thank you! 
the blur said, as it shot away at high speeds. The dwarven sagged and then shook her head. That tore it. She was requesting another room. This one was too close to that bloody star pool and all the loonies who visited it. Bifur, son of Kifur, was peacefully eating the petals from a new and rather delicious flower when a blur barreled into him, talking so fast that the words were one shrill, continuous wall of sound. Ikhujurng, Ikhujurng, Bifur said, and swallowed his flower. Ashamed to rush it, really, but still. Ori? The blur resolved itself into a trembling Ori. His hair was nearly standing on end with fright. I've changed my mind and so terrifying. Can you please, please, please hold me until I can breathe again? Mashandi, excuse me? You're making less sense than I ever did. I've changed my mind, Ori said again, and he looked down. His bloodless face began to flush red high upon his cheeks, and he ducked his face away as embarrassment began to hit his charming large ears. Um, forget the rest, would you? No, I don't think I shall, said Before gently. Come here, son Malik. Odis head snapped up, his eyes wide. Oh, why did you call me? For once, I do not think I need you to translate, Before murmured, and he pulled the neat-wrapped younger dwarf closer into his arms. He fit rather nicely, soft and warm, and a little wriggly. Here, do you like flowers? They're all right, Odi said, stunned. I like anything smaller than a tree right now. Ah, so ants are not as harmless as they appear. Before wondered at the smell of Or's disheveled hair, paper and wood smoke. Odi shriveled and ducked closer into Before's arms. No, they really, really, really aren't. Just, um, can, can you hold me just until I stop shaking? Certainly. Eat a flower or two. Help yourself, Before suggested. I promise they will not fight back. Ori made a whimpering little noise and pressed his face into Before's beard. Help me, Torin demanded, pushing the door open with his forearms and leaning there. He could feel the sweat clinging to his hair and a yawning whirlpool of disbelief in his belly. His limbs ached with exhaustion and it seemed days since the battle. The whole seemed unreal, dreamlike, instead of the ultimate reality that they were, the final reality that waited for them all. His maker looked up, and the anvil was bare, his tongues empty. No glow rested in the flames of his forge, and his glorious, indistinct face was pensive. Oh, help me, Torrin demanded again, and he curled his hand into a fist and slammed it against the door. This cannot be your design. Help me understand this. Why does an elf look to my star? No, not any elf, no. And Torin stumbled forward, wiping at his dripping brow and laughing half-scorn, half-disbelief. 
The son of Trandwell, child of a faithless and honorless hypocrite. Why? How? The vast, rough hand of the great smith of the Valar reached out, and Thorin shook and shook, and his head reeled as it settled upon his hair. The soft voice of Mahal the Shaper trembled through his bones like thunder with no sound. My son, he said, but Thorin could not, would not be silent, not even for his maker. And hold my tongue in the face of this, he bellowed, and some small part of him watched on in horrified astonishment as he pushed aside the hand of his maker with a sharp and savage cry. This, this abomination, Gimli cannot be if he, the elf lies. He lies as his father lied. He wishes something from Gimli, no doubt. His seeming conversion, his pretty words, all designed to trick. Even I was taken in by that peerless performance. Ah, but now I see through him. He will ask for white jewels next. Mark my words. Enough. The word was quiet, but Thorin was stuck dumb nonetheless. His eyes pressed shut, and he knuckled roughly at his eyelids before falling to his knees awkwardly upon the unfinished stone of Mahal's forge. The single word, quietly spoken, was as heavy as a hammer blow upon his shoulders. Thorin bent his head and fought back his anger and his terrible, crushing fear. You speak fully, and you know it. There was no censure in the great, soft voice, but neither was there any gentleness. You have seen the true nature of Legolas Tranduilion, and you seek to deny that knowledge by spouting all hatreds. Stop falling back into old and unhealthy habits, Inudai. You have grown larger than their smallness. Thorin breathed roughly against his hands for a few moments and forced the tears back behind his eyes. He would shed none for the elf. None. Help me, he grated and bent until his head pressed against the cool stones. Help me. Said Mahal once more. And Thorin bit off the hundreds of angry words that crowded upon his tongue. Shh, Thorin, you are ready to know, and so now you know. Before, you could not have borne this knowledge. You need little help from me, if any. You will learn to understand in your own time. You have all you need within your head and heart already. I do not, Thorin growled, and his mouth tugged into the angry and bitter lines that had so recently begun to soften. I cannot. You can. I am not made of such stuff, Thorin began, only to be interrupted by a soft chuckle like the susurration of a mighty underground river. If any knows what you are made of, it is me, Davala said. Thorin huffed in irritation against the floor, 
feeling his hot and sour bread bouncing back upon his face. You are not made of the rock of the earth, nor of the steel of swords. You are not stone, nor a weapon, nor a calcitrant iron to be shed by the pounding of unkind fate. You are flesh, and flesh is malleable. Yes, even for dwarves, you can adapt, you can change. In fact, my child, you already have. You simply do not believe it yet. I care little for myself, muttered Thorin. My star, what of him? He cares for the elf in return, but he cannot truly. Gini is his own world, and always has been. He could hear the small smile in Mahal's voice. But he will not look to an elf, Thorin said, and he looked up hating the note of pleading in his voice, hating that he could not protect Gimli from what might lie in his own heart. Please, grant me this surety. My star will not look to Tranduil's son and see the face of his one. Please, please. Oh. His maker said, and then the great hand tipped his chin upwards and ran a thumb over his shorn beard. You have reddened your eyes, my child. Your body is very beyond measure, and you have not eaten. How many of your brothers and sisters did you terrify today? Answer me! Thorin snarled, and Mahal's hand tightened slightly upon his jaw. Is it so terrible to look to another race and find that they are fair? Thorin gritted his teeth. And after the looking, and after the finding, after all the joys and all bonds and all oaths, disaster follows and always has. That is what it means to be a Khazad. Do you truly think so? Aye, Thorin said, and he glared up at his maker. We are ever betrayed by fate and by chance and by fickle inconsistency. Other races might hold their vows cheaply, but we must endure and suffer. I cannot see this for Gimli. I will not watch him love and lose. The great voice pierced through his flesh as it murmured. Not always, my son. Sometimes the love remains, despite war, death and age. Sometimes it burns as warm embers. To be renewed in days of blissful peace. Sometimes it is not a wound, but a promise. There was a small pause, and then Mahal's smile shone its radiance upon Thorin's brow. Warm as a forge fire, as comforting as his mother's arms or his father's great beard. You know this near better than anyone. You know how a promise may be made between wards. And war's devotion has not ever been greater. Thorne sucked in a breath that stung his lungs, and then he balled his fists tightly. No, this is not myself and Bilbo. 
This is not our settle of mischances and vanished hope. At least I have this, that I have never disgusted Bilbo. But my brave, faithful, noble Gimli, will he look an honorless elf, a creature who has held him in utmost contempt, and finds him repulsive beyond words, and behold the dearest and most hopeless longing of his heart. You speak great foolishness, Mahal said, and there was a slight note of anger in his voice, faint, like a distant thunderstorm, but growing louder. An opinion might change. Tell me, did Bilbo delight you upon your first meeting? You know he did not, Thorin growled, and then he clenched his eyes shut. A hobbit is not an elf. And a son is not his father, said Mahal. Legolas is not Tranduil. They are as different as the phases of Isil, as it races through the sky. Where Tranduil or Ophelion is wounded and scared, hardened beyond healing, Legolas Tranduilion is whole and as flexible as a young sapling. Stone and root, green leaf and good dark earth, you have felt with your own heart how they may intertwine. Fair words, Thorin said, and made a savage noise of anguish as he looked up, glaring. Fair riddles must all talk in circles. I forget sometimes that you cannot feel the patterns as I do. Mahal said, and there was true chagrin in his great and glorious face. I did not make you to hear the song of Ea. Thorin only leaned forward upon his hands, the cool stone of the floor seeping into his knees and palms, his hair spilling around his face as he fought back, the fury that threatened to overwhelm him once more. Peace, Thorin. Legolas looks upon Gimli with his own eyes, not the eyes of his father. You have seen how they have grown. They see each other a new and compelling fascination. Strange, strange but fair, unlike and yet like. Our bright and fierce star does not burn without an appreciative audience. Throwing grims in disgust, his lip curling. Do not return to old, comfortable and twisted ways of thinking, said Mahal, gentle once more. His touch made the marrow of Thorin's spine freeze and the blood roll under his skin. You have become wiser than that, my son. Thorin bowed his head and then he shook it roughly. No, I have not. I am not wise. Nor have I ever been. Balin is wise. Bilbo is wise. Elrond, Galadriel, and those other untouchable and unfathomable lords and ladies. They are wise. I am not, or I could bear this. The great north forefinger rose and touched his eyes, and Thorin cried out involuntarily before falling to his elbows and clasping at his face. Wait and be calm. 
I have repaired your eyes. You have broken blood vessels in your anger. Oin will be furious, Thorin mumbled, rubbing at his eyes. You are furious. Put aside the sanctioned excuses and tell me why. Thorin sat still as a statue for a moment. When his voice emerged, it was deep and soft, nearly noiseless. Legolas may believe that he loves Gimli, but what if Gimli should love him back? He whispered, and then he swallowed. I fear for my star. I fear for what might happen. Legolas might not be Tranduil, but his people have been shown to disregard our vows and our friendships. I... He broke off his chest aching as though Mahal had taken his ribs in his mighty hands and was slowly crushing the life from him. Strength, my son, said his maker, a life surged into him with the words. He looked up. I have seen one I care for by decade upon decade, holding his low trap forever behind his tongue, growing old all alone, the only reward for his constancy a lifetime of crushed hopes and a wandering mind. When the elf tires of his unusual object of affection, then what fate is this for the best dwarf I have ever known? Legolas might fancy himself in love now, but what of his father, his people? He has been raised upon false slanders of my folk, and I have heard him with my own ears, insulting Gimli and calling him as full as an orc. When Legolas is surrounded by elves once more, how fair will Gimli appear that day? All the nobility and honesty and bravery in the world might not hold the weight of a parent's disapproval, nor a lifetime of disgust and disdain. Have faith in him. Faith. I have faith in Gimli, for he is faithfulness itself. That I can hold to. The rest, I have had faith before, and I have lost everything. Those I care for pay the price. I am not one to speak of fate any longer. Do you forget your name? Said his maker's voice, rolling through his flesh, piercing him through and pinning him to the floor. Thorin's feet rattled, and he trembled uncontrollably. You are where hope is forged, my relentless, indomitable son. Do not despair. Not all hours must be sundered. You will find your hope again. It is too late, Thorin said, and he turned away. The shame in the first aftermath of his rage now began to wash over him, and he rubbed at his stinging eyes some more. He felt old and tired. All is too late. I am dead. And so is hope, and it cannot be reforged. The war topples into darkness, and my star will perish in the fires of Mordor, or grieve until his light is extinguished forever. All things can be reforged, Thorin, 
Especially hope, said Mahal, and a distant thunder rumbled beneath his words, as though in agreement. And as Varda does not allow her stars to dim before their time, neither do I. Bonfrey walked across the room, her face screwed up with concentration. Good, good, said Baris critically. Try straightening your back a bit more, and stop watching your feet. Bonfrey straightened as much as she could, stiffening like a board. Her eyes snapped to the ceiling. Better, said Baris, but no sooner had the word left her mouth, then her sister stepped upon the hem of the great heavy dress she had borrowed and slammed against the dining table. Oh, Durin's beard! Ow! said Bonfries, somewhat muffled and extremely cross. Here we are, said her older sister anxiously, pulling Bonfries up and dusting her off as best she could. Are you all right? Have you hurt yourself? Oh, get off. You're as bad as mom, grumbled Bonfries, nursing her knee. I can't do this, Namad. Now, now, you've only just started, said Baris kindly, tucking Bonfries' fiery red hair behind her ears. Don't give up so easily. I was hopeless when I began. But you've been doing it for fifty years now, muttered Bonfries. I can't. I'm not made this way. You're not used to others around you, is all, Buddy said, and gently set her younger sister down. You've been on your own so much. You've forgotten how to talk to anyone who isn't a raven. Come on, take that silly thing off and I'll get you a hot drink. I hope it's stronger than bloody tea. Bonfrey said beneath her breath, and she began to pull at the gown's neckline. I hate this. It feels like a noose. How do you stand it? As you say, I've been at court for fifty years, Buddy said, bustling away towards the kitchen. You get used to the fashions eventually. I'll ask Gimris to help when she has a moment, if you like. Bonfrey grumbled, pulling the dress off, and kicking off the jeweled boots with a vicious satisfaction. Why can't I wear my bald ladders and arm guards? She said, glaring at her reflection in the mirror. A very cross ginger-haired dwarodan glared back at her, clad only in a shift and a scowl. Everyone knows I'm the Archer Bonfries, child of a tanner and a cook. Why put on airs? Because he's the crown prince, Namad, Bari said, fussing with the kettle. She decided to add a drop or two of something bracing in the tea for Bonfries. Her impetuous middle sister had had her nerves stretched to the limit over the past few days. It was the last of the summer liquor, but what use was it in a bottle? Rationing was only rational to a point. The soul had to survive as well as the body. I know you have not forgotten. Thorin, said Bonfri softly, and then she sat down heavily and stared at her feet. She had cuts on her shins from climbing up to the rookeries. The lady this never pays attention to the stupid fashions, nor does the queen, 
The lady this is old enough to do as she likes, I suppose, Mary said cheerfully. And you're not queen yet, Namadit. That has to be the worst joke the Valar have ever played on the line of Durin, said Bonfries glumly. I am the worst possible Dvaro in the world to become a member of the ruling family. But you knew, didn't you? Barry said, returning and handling Bonfries a cup. Her sister sniffed at it, and then her eyes warmed with appreciation at the slight smell of heady liquor that tinged the scent of the tea. You knew all at once that he was the one. Yes, Bonfri sighed again and took a sip. I just... Baris, I'm not like you. I can't look regal and calm. I can't mesmerize a crowd with my very presence. And I can't walk in one of those great galloping gowns without watching my feet. Court manners are stupid and convoluted. We're dwarves, not elves. Ugh. Ravens are simpler. Or go without the stupid formal petticoats. The stone helm is not a raven, Barry said, and nudged Bonfrey's shoulder. Nor is he an elf. Bonfrey's gave her sister a quick, an odd look that quickly melted into a foolish grin. No, he isn't. You are so lucky, my sister said Baris after a moment, as she wrapped an arm around Bonfrey's shoulders. And I am so happy for you. I wish he were anyone other than a crown prince, Bonfrey said, and then she gulped at her mug again. Well, not really, for then he wouldn't be touring with all his clever words and ways, but sort of. He's... Oh, Baris, I hate this. We're at the war, and I barely know him. I've spent more time with that great blonde pret Lyrophane. Shh, Baris said, pulling Bonfries a little closer. The younger Dwarodam buried her face in her sister's great cloud of thick, bushy brown hair. Shh. What will come to pass will come to pass, and we do what we can, Namadith. You fight in your way, and I in mine. You'll have time to know each other when our part is done. Yes, I heard about the tunnel idea, Mawal Bonfris, before she pulled back to look up at her sister with a glint in her eye. You canny old thing. So, did it impress her? Baris blinked. And then she felt her traitorous blush begin somewhere around her ankles and slowly travel upwards with the speed of a wildfire. Thought so, Bonfrey's crowd, and she clapped her hands and stamped her bare feet in glee. Oh, Namad, your face is scarlet and purple. That's none of your business, Badis mumbled, but Bonfrey's would not be deterred. Oh, come on! You spend all your time looking after the rest of us. Let me listen to you pour your poor heart out. Baris looked upwards, drawing upon every ounce of dignity she possessed, as both a member of the Guild of Musicians and as a master performer. No. Bonfris wrinkled her nose. Baris, 
You're not exactly subtle anymore. I don't care, Buddy said sharply. It was so unlike her to snap that Bonfries actually rocked backwards. Buddies, I'm sorry, she said after a moment. I didn't know you were so upset about it. The singer swallowed, and then she bent her head. Sometimes I wish I was like Barur or Bolrur or Alfris, and that my craft filled my heart brainful until there wasn't room for any of this, this yearning, she said quietly, her marvelous voice little more than the wind brushing through the chamber. You're not all as lucky as you, Namad. Bonfres fumbled for Barry's hand, and upon finding it, she held on tightly. Both string rough fingers met guitar calluses. We are so stupid, she said, letting her head rest against Boris. The mountain could fall tomorrow. That's why it all seems so urgent, I suppose, Boris said distantly, squeezing Bonfer's hand. We reach for any small chance of happiness now, before it is too late. I want you to be happy, Boris, said Bonfries in a small voice. Boris squeezed Bonfer's hand again, marveling that her brash, loud, unsocial little sister could ever speak in such a quiet tone. I want you to be happy too, she said, and then she heaved a sigh. Wear what you want, Bonfries, and spit in the eyes if they don't like it. You are who you are, and that is no bad thing. Bonfries blinked, and then she looked down. I think you should ask her again. We'll see, Barry said, as she thought longingly of corn yellow hair and a sweet, crooked, cynical smile. We'll see. He slept, though his heart was troubled. He tossed and turned through the night. At one stage, he thought he heard voices above him. Please, he is dear to me, and thine is the gift of peace and compassion. He had found little enough in his life, said a new voice, a female voice. His is a spirit of fire and steel. No, for nothing was he given his name, no. I will try. A soft, sweet-smelling hand, as large to him as an adult sees to a child, touched his brow. Turns eyes swelled with tears, and he finally lay still. There, that is all I may give him. For the rest he know it already, though it brings him no peace. I fear for such a soul, Shaper. The last time a spirit of fire still burned in anger, the world itself was forever made darker and colder. He had passed through darkness already, said the male voice, and half asleep, turn turned to it as a sunflower turns to the sun. His maker... The hands that had shaped him would shield him, shield him from his terrible, crushing sorrow. And hope burns brightest in the dark. Nina, for such kindness, I thank you. 
I do not know if my tears will serve in the place of all those he has never shed, but I will weep for him, said the woman, and then Thorn was asleep in truth and knew no more. When he woke, Fris was seated at the end of his bed. What time is it? he croaked. His mother jerked in surprise, and then she leaned forward and smoothed her thumb beneath his eyes. You have been weeping, she said softly, and as she pressed her head against his. Oh, my storm cloud, I knew, I knew you were not ready. I could never be ready, he said, and he turned his eyes away. The anger was banged to a dull glow in his chest, but oh, his mouth was parched, and shame was closing his throat tightly. No time. An hour past midday. You have missed your shift, she said, and smiled wryly. Your brother took it for you. So late. Torrance struggled upright in his sheets, and Free stood and poured him a cup of water from the nightstand jug. You have done quite a number on your smithy, she said noncommittally, as he grabbed for the water and nearly inhaled it. There is barely a whole thing left within it. I was most impressed that you were able to snap a steel poker into two pieces. Torin winced and lowered his cup, bending his head down. Your rage is an honest thing, my son. Ri said, sitting down beside him again and pushing back his madly snarled hair. But you have never been able to control it. Never. I did not hurt anyone, he said, and he hated that the end of the sentence curled upwards into a question. No, she said and smiled. You have learned. Tell me, can you eat? For answer... Thorin's stomach growled loudly. He squeezed his eyes shut again. I cannot possibly face the holes after my... display. Hush, get up and wash yourself, his mother said. Gently, to be sure, but an order was an order. I will tend to your hair, Inudai. Thorin sighed and pushed all thoughts from his mind. Blank a slate... He moved through the motions of leaving, though for what purpose he could not have said. Luncheon was a somber, stilted affair. Most varus in the halls ducked away as he passed, and the minute he entered the great eating chamber, a heart spread through it that never truly dissipated. Though whispering began the minute or into his seat. His father patted his shoulder in wordless commiseration, and across the table, Oin only shook his head miserably when Thorin nodded cautiously in greeting. His beard was a wreck, and he pulled at it in his distress. I know, he moaned. Oh, laddie, I know. Thor ignored the hubbub. He spoke as though nothing had occurred yesterday at all, gruff, and bluff and measured as always. Freyra was stiff and disapproving. Therin was silent and subdued, 
pushing his stew around his plate absently. His nephews were wide-eyed and worried, and they kept their gazes upon him as they ate. Kil was so preoccupied that he nearly spooned his stew directly into his eye. Kili had looked upon an elf and found her fairest starlight, and an elf had looked upon Kili and had not turned away. Crack! Arrowhead whipped towards him, and Thorin carefully, carefully relaxed his hand, where he had begun to snap the thick hardwood table. Then he scowled as blackly as he was able. Several dwarves squeaked and scurried away, and bent his head to his food, allowing his hair to form a curtain around him. The rest of the meal was eaten in tense silence. Tris drew Thorin aside as he was leaving, smoothing down his tunic and then pushing his hair back once more. Loni had reported as his bowling, and as she tisked and touched his brow, there they are once more, those cursed lines, she said softly to herself. How I wish they were gone for good. Thorin did not know what to say to that, so he simply stood there in the corridor his mother's fingers trailing upon his forehead. Trish shook herself, and then she refocused, her hand slipping down to come through his neat and hair. Theoden King and Gandalf have taken counsel, and they will travel to Isengard with the retinue this night, she said, delicately avoiding the names of the elf or his star. Brand of Dale has finally forced his counsel to come to a decision, and the forces of Dale will march for the mountain in little less than a fortnight. Thorin frowned. There is scarcely time enough to master an army. She smiled thinly. Your cousin managed it. Thine is no ordinary dwaro, and his army was no common army, Thorin retorted. There is more, is there not? She nodded and then pulled a slight face. I was not able to decipher much of Odi's report. That was surprising. Thorin blinked, briefly shaken from his sour mood. But I gather that the ants have laid face to Isengard and taken Ortang's keys from Saruman himself and trapped him in his tower. At least, I think that was what he said. She added. Hmm, Thorin grunted. And then he set his jaw. I will rejoin Gimli now. You will take your brother, she said, her voice just as firm as his. He glowered for a moment, and then nodded his head once. Rhys leaned up on her toes and kissed his cheek, before tugging upon one of his braids. Sulking is a bad habit, Inodai, she said in a clipped voice. Yes, you have reason for your upset. No, you have no cause to take it out upon others. Do you hear? He growled. She tugged upon his braid more sharply, and he hissed. Yes, let go. Ahmad, I am no pouting child. I am fully aware of the foolishness of my actions, and I would fain be elsewhere where none can stare at me for my full temper. She did suiting his head with a stroke of her open hand. Oh, son, she said, 
and as she leaned her forehead against his once more, You are of the line of Durin. Of course you have a terrible temper. That is not why they stare. Mahal's hammer and tongues. Many of the dwarves here are firebeards, and they could put a longbeard to shame with the explosion of their anger. Why, then, he said, his voice rough. For the selfsame cause of that temper, she replied, and her hands hovered above his shoulders for a moment before they clasped him tightly. They knew of Gimli and the elf, and they know how much you love him. Everyone knows of the quest, Thorin. Everyone knows what you do and how you watch day in and out. You misunderstand how many here in the halls admire you and your resolved, my steely storm cloud. There are songs being sung and tales told of your dedication and your loyalty to the living. Each of your friends and companions is treated with some reflected measure of awe, and new offers to join in the watch come thick and fast every day. She smiled at his dumbfounded look. Oh, Thorin, my magnificent Thorin, you truly are the most unobservant dwarf to ever live. I, I, he stammered, his mind adrift and his mouth open. Then he roared upon one hill and stalked away towards the chamber of San Sukhun as fast as his boots could carry him. I'll send your brother after you, shall I? Fris called after him, warm amusement and pride in her voice. It was afternoon upon the plains of Rohan, and Thorin shook himself free of the clinging starlight, trying to shake free his turbulent thoughts. The sight that greeted him was not one of reassurance. The strange new wood before Helm's dyke sprawled before him, a tangled and snarled frown upon the landscape. Mist swirled around the trees, and their sweeping boughs reached out like long, grasping fingers. Even less reassuring was the sight of Legolas seated upon Arrod, with Gimli mounted securely behind him. Gimli's head was still bound, but his eyes were bright, and he had somewhere recovered his helm, which hung at his saddlebow. His hand was looped around the elf's slender waist, his thumb tucked into the leaf and bow's belt. Thorin bit back the tyrant that threatened to burst from behind his lips and concentrated upon breathing through his nose. We ride through, Gandalf said, lifting his staff. Beside him, Theoden and Eomir paled. Aragorn, however, gave the wood a determined look. True, then, he said, and looked back at Legolas and Gimli. Legolas nodded ever so slightly. There was a strange confusion half-hidden in his eyes. He looks like a dwarfling who has no idea how to shape the priceless stone handed to him, commented Frerin, appearing beside Thorin in a corona of starlight. Thorin grunted. Are you going to bite my head off if I talk? Talk as you will, Thorin muttered and folded his arms. Oh, I was going to anyway, Frerin said, shrugging. You shouldn't terrify everyone all the time, after all. It's bad for your ego. 
Despite himself, Torn's mouth twitched. I thank you for your concern for my ego. I've always felt it my duty to puncture it as often as possible, said Farron loftily. What's going on? Torn nodded to the slow, careful train of horses as they paid their way into the miraculous, brooding, impossible forest. They now made their way to Isengard. Farron jerked backwards. To face Saruman, a wizard. He's defeated, Amma tells me, Torrin said, and he began to make his way after the horses as they moved into the shifting shadows of the trees, trapped in his tower. Oh, Farron followed, his tongue still as he thought about this for a moment. Well, good. I wouldn't like to face a wizard upon their terms, not at all. It is hot in here, Legolas said, his voice hushed. I feel a great rate around me. Do you not feel the air throb in your ears? I feel hot, that's for sure and certain, Gimli muttered, but he looked about at the trees with very eyes. These are the strangest trees I ever saw, Legolas said, and I have seen many an oak grow from acorn to ruinous age. I wish I had time to walk amongst them. They have voices, and in time I might grow to understand their thoughts. Thorin could not help but notice, with increasing sourness, that Legolas' eyes flicked to his traveling companion as he finished speaking. No, no, Gimli said, alarmed. Let us leave them. I guess their thoughts already. Hatred for all that goes on two legs, and their speeches of crushing and strangling. Not all that goes on two legs, Legolas said. It is orcs that they hate. Of elves and men they know little, but the axes of Isengard they know well. From the deep dales of Fangorn, Gimli, that is whence they come, I guess. And what of the axes of the dwarves? Do they know aught of them? Gimli mumbled, and he looked up at the trees, his jaw rippling beneath his beard. Legolas laughed softly. Be easy, my dearest friend. These woods are a wonder. Gimli harumphed. Hmm, you might think them wonderful, but I have seen a greater wonder in this land, more beautiful than any grow or glade that ever grew. My heart is still full of it. Strange are the ways of men, Legolas. Here they have one of the marvels of the northern world, and what do they say of it? Caves, they say. Caves. Holes to fly to in time of war, to store father in. My good Legolas, do you know that the caverns of Helm's Deep are vast and beautiful? There would be an endless pilgrimage of dwarves, merely to gaze at them, if such things were known to be. Ah, indeed, they would pay pure gold for a brief glance. Fern sighed longingly. He isn't wrong. And I would give gold to be excused, said Legolas, and double to be let out if I strayed in. Kutuj, Thorin growled. Fern's little hand upon his arm was a gentle reminder that his temper was not wholly under his control as yet. He shuddered 
and brought himself to bear. He must not rage like a worthless troll, useless and powerless. He must watch. You have not seen, so I forgive your jest, said Gimli, but you speak like a fool. Legolas did not say anything, but the tips of his ears turned a brilliant red, and his lips pressed together tightly. Thorin wished he could ignore the flush of embarrassment that was spreading over the fair elven face. So many things he had not seen before were now clear to him. Happy were the ignorant. Gimli had not noticed. He continued in a dreamy tone, a smile half-tugging at his lips as he spoke. Do you think those halls are fair, where your king dwells under the hall in Mirkwood, and dwarves helped in their making long ago? They are but hovels compared with the caverns I have seen here. Immeasurable halls, filled with an everlasting music of water that tinkles into pools, as fair as Kelet Zaham in the starlight. Nicholas flash faded as Gimli spoke, and his strange crystalline eyes glistened as he listened intently to the deep dwarven voice, lilting in the sunset as though it were reciting one of the old poems. Gimli's words floated through the mist, and between the twisted trees, low and rolling, and touched with the rich accent of Tafurabad. And Legolas, Gimli rumbled softly, when the torches are kindled, and men walk on the sandy floors under the echoing domes. Ah, then Legolas, gems and crystals and veins of precious ore glint in the polished walls, and the light glows through folded marbles. There are columns of white and saffron and dawn rose, Legolas, flooded and twisted into dreamlike forms. They spring up from many-colored floors to meet the glistening pendants of the roof. Wings, ropes, curtains, finest frozen clouds, spears, banners, pinnacles of suspended palaces. Still lakes mirror them. A glimmering ward looks upon from dark pools covered with clear glass. Cities, such as the mind of Durin could scarce have imagined in his sleep, stretch on true avenues and pillared courts, on into the dark recesses where no light can come, and blink. Legolas blinked at the change of tone, and Eret snorted his irritation at the laxness of the reins. Thorindon saw that Legolas had been near mesmerized by Gimli's description, and a flush had returned to stain his cheeks a light pink. They have blinked, and grasped the reins more firmly to cover his laps. Rarin coughed uncomfortably. Gimli lifted one great hand in the air, as though he were releasing a single droplet of water, a half-smile upon his face. A silver drop falls, and the round wrinkles in the glass make all the towers bend and waver, like weeds and corals in a grotto of the sea. There is chamber after chamber, Legolas, hole opening out of hole, dome after dome, star beyond star, and still the winning paths lead on into the mountain's heart, caves, the caverns of Helm's Deep. Happy was the chance that drove me there. 
It makes me weep to leave them. Legolas blinked, as though rousing himself from a dream. With some effort he mastered his light and bantering tone, and Torin hated that he could now see the struggle it cost him. Then I will wish you this fortune for your comfort, Gimli, said the elf, that you may come safe from war and return to see them again. But do not tell all your kindred. There seems little left for them to do from your account. Maybe the men of this land are wise to say Leal. One family of busy dwarves with hammer and chisel might marry more than they made. No, you do not understand, said Gimli reverently, the rumble of his voice soft as a fervent prayer. No dwarf would be unmoved by such loneliness. None of Durin's race would mind those caves for stone or ore, not if diamonds and gold could be got there. Do you cut down groves of blossoming trees in the spring for firewood? We would tend these glades of flowering stone, not quarry them with cautious skill, tap by tap, a small chip of rock and no more, perhaps, in a whole anxious day. So we could work, and as the years went by, we should open new ways and display far chambers that are still dark, Glimpse only as a white beyond fissures in the rock. And lights, Legolas. We should make light such lamps as one shown in Khazadum. And when we wish we would drive away the night that was lain there since the hills were made. And when we desired rest, we would let the night return. There was finally silence as Gimli's deep voice trailed away into the trees. And then Legolas heaved a deep, odd sigh. You move me, Gimli, he said in a hushed tone. I have never heard you speak like this before. Almost you made me regret that I have not seen these caves. Then the elf shook himself, and the light of an idea entered his eyes. Come, let us make this bargain. If we both return safe out of the perils that await us, we will journey for a while together. You shall visit Fangor with me, and then I will come with you to see Helm's Deep. He seeks a way to keep Gimli with him, Thorin realized, and his hands clenched so tightly into fists that his knuckles cracked. He will not succeed. Gimli will return to Erebor, to his home and kin. Don't be so sure, Thorin mumbled and he ducked as Thorin's glare was turned upon him. Ah, stop! Why would a dwarf of Durin's line care to visit a festering and spiteful heap of wood? Thorin demanded of Freren, and he whirled back to aim his glare at Legolas. No, Gimli will return to our home, our home, to his father and mother and sister and nephew. To those that know him and care for him, he's a dwarf, he belongs with dwarves. This elf cannot love him the way they do. This elf cannot ever understand everything that he is. Thorin, he will hear you, Freren hissed. Good, Thorin snarled, but his voice lowered despite himself. He cannot care so dearly for the elf in return. 
he growled, his fingernails cutting into his palms as his fists tightened even further. He cannot, he cannot. The sunset was sending fingers of light through the sinister trees, making them look touched with gold and etching the gnarled limbs and the walls of ancient bark with dark black shadows. Gimli glanced at them apprehensively before he straightened and clapped Legolas on the back in a comradely fashion. That is not the way I would have chosen to go, to trees before stone, nay, he said jovially. But I will endure Fangorn, if only to share the wonders of the caves with you. Gimli, Thorin exclaimed, aghast. It cannot be. Please don't explode again, Freren moaned, covering his head. You're running out of things to break, and I don't want you to start on people. Thorin snarled wordlessly before stalking away. His mind was aflame and his whole body was shaking. Gimli had agreed. His smithy was a ruin. Thorin peeked through the wreckage in the small hours of the night. Sleep had eluded him and his anger was a near-living thing that shared the same body as he. He had padded his way barefoot and unbraided through the near-deserted holes to calm himself, clad in only his sleep pants, only to find himself before his smithy door, his broken smithy door. He pushed it open with his fingertips, and at the sight of the carnage before him, his anger abruptly fizzled and died, leaving shame and regret in its wake. Made a proper go of it, didn't you? said Bilbo conversationally, peering down at the heavy slab of wood that had once been the end of Thorin's workbench. Very kingly, I'm sure. Yes, yes, Thorin groaned, and he pulled over what had once been the foot of his anvil and sat down, placing his head in his hands. Another regret forged in anger. I have so many. My kuduluidujib. So very many, and what I did to you, the most heavy of them all. Bilbo's voice started, and then his breath caught. Oh, you're not, not dressed for company. Ah. Uh, Torn looked up between ropey and calm strands of hair. I apologize, he said, low. I do not mean to distress you even if you are but my own loneliness. Please do not leave. Just please do not leave. Bilbo's eyes softened, and the hobbit's noiseless feet took a few quick steps towards him. Now, why would I do a silly thing like that? He said gently and smiled. Thor let out the breath he had been holding. It felt as though he had been holding it for centuries. Thank you, Master Baggins. Fish, it's nothing, you great dwarven lump, said Bilbo. Badge over, then. There's not a single place to sit and have a pipe in here that you haven't managed to mangle. Thorough job, I must say. Should I be glad you did not arrive with your company, that fine spring eve? Would my poor little smile yet be standing? Thorne's mouth actually curled upwards in remembrance. 
though he kept his eyes fixed upon his bare feet. I cause enough damage today without using my hands. I'll just sit here, I suppose, Bilbo muttered, and then he lifted his eyebrows and aimed his knowingly look at Thorin, his brow wrinkling in that charmingly exasperated way. Oh, cheer up, you're as glum as a wet foriole, even though things might be tremendously terrible and bleak, and the sun may never shine again. There's no reason not to pull yourself together, put your best walking stick in your hand, and face the new day. And gracious me, smile a little, would you? You know, uh, you should really put a tunic on. You're really most distracting. I apologize again, Master Baggins, Torrin said, his lips twitching. His heart felt as heavy as lead. But this Bilbo of his heart, this Bilbo of his dreams, yet sat beside him, scolding him for being gloomy. I will try. Good, Bilbo sniffed, and then he exclaimed, Oh, I say, what a remarkable pen! Author's Notes Niena, the Weeping Walla, one of the Ainur and queens of the Valar. She lives in the far west of Amman and grieves for the suffering of the world. However, she does not weep for herself, and all who listen to her learn pity and endurance and hope. From her, the Maya who would become Gandalf the Grey, Olorin, learned great compassion. She also comforts the spirits of the dead. She is the sister of Namo, Mandos, and Irmo, Lorien. She is the only female Vala who is not married. For Yule, a month in the Shire Reckoning calendar, the month before the winter festival of Yule, and the final month of the year. The Song of Ea. The music made by the Ainur before the universe was made. The music was then endowed with existence and was transmuted and transformed into the world by Eero Iluvitar. All the themes that occurred within the great song will play out as the history of the world, all including the discord of Melkor. Varda, Queen of the Stars, one of the Ainur and foremost amongst the queens of the Valar. She is married to Manwe and is best beloved of all elves who name her Ilberit, particularly the Sylvan elves. Isil, the moon, the sheen. This vessel is made from the last surviving flower of Tilperion, one of the two trees of prehistory that fill the whole of the world with their light. The trees, greatest of the creation of Ivana, were destroyed by Milkor in his jealousy and then devoured by Ungoliant, the first of the giant spider creatures. The moon vessel is drawn by the Maya Tilion. Isil is revered by the elves both because Telperion was the elder tree. The other, Laurelin, gave one less fruit that would become Anar, the sun vessel, and because the moon rose first. Minas Itil, 
nau minas morgul, in minas anor, nau minas tirith, were named after them, the towers of the moon and the sun.